Welcome to Module 8 of Administrative Law. I'm Craig Forces. In the last module, we completed our discussion of what I call the table of contents of this course, namely the seven steps to administrative law wisdom. I propose to you that it constitutes an excellent way to address a, a novel administrative law problem as it compels you to complete a useful diagnostic. In this module, I want to add details to one branch of those seven steps, the so-called four-question approach to the control of the exercise of delegated power. That is, the portion of the seven steps that deals with, among other things, judicial review. And specifically, in today's module, I want to address one part that we mentioned in that prior module, that is, judicial review itself. And even more specifically, I want to focus on judicial review of the federal executive by the federal courts. In the practical components of this course, you will complete a separate exercise focusing on judicial review in Ontario under the Judicial Review Procedure Act, but I have built the detailed simulated cases on which our active learning exercises are based on two federal cases. In those practical components of this course, you'll be working through, yes, statutory appeals, with reference to one of our case studies, and you will also be working through a federal court judicial review scenario. And throughout, you'll be reading a number of federal court cases. So it's helpful for us to begin by exploring the jurisdiction of the federal court on judicial review near the beginning of this course. This module is therefore something of a brief version of what I'll call administrative law civil procedure for lack of a better expression. So to start us off, Virtually all judicial supervision of federal administrative action is assigned to the Federal Court of Canada. That includes jurisdiction by judicial review, and also, incidentally, there are a number of statutory rights of appeal that go to the federal courts, and especially the Federal Court of Appeal. The scope of the Federal Court of Canada's jurisdiction is a difficult and arcane subject, and we'll just skim the surface in this module. But to begin with, let's say a few words about the Federal Court of Canada. So the Federal Court of Canada is a statutory court. It was created in 1971 by way of what was then called the Federal Courts Act and is now called the Federal Courts Act, plural. The constitutional basis for the Federal Courts Act is Section 101 of the Constitution Act of 1867. That's the section that confers on Parliament the authority to establish courts for the better administration of the laws of Canada. And Parliament has done so through enactment of the Federal Courts Act, as well as other provisions like the Tax Court Statute. By the way, Section 101 is also the provision that allows for the creation of a Supreme Court of Appeal for Canada and is the constitutional basis for the Supreme Court Act. Now, because the Federal Court of Canada is a statutory court, it has no inherent jurisdiction over any subject matter. So put another way, while the provincial superior courts have inherent jurisdiction over everything that legislatures haven't excluded from their jurisdiction, and as you may recall, because of the Supreme Court's interpretation of Section 96 of the Constitution Act of 1867, there are limits on what the legislature can take away in terms of inherent jurisdiction possessed by the provincial superior courts. But the provincial superior courts have this inherent jurisdiction, which means they have jurisdiction over everything that hasn't been taken away, while the federal courts only have jurisdiction over things that a statute gives to them and gives jurisdiction over. So in practice, this means that everything the federal courts presume to have jurisdiction over must be found in some statute, usually in the Federal Courts Act. 
the single most important provisions giving the federal courts jurisdiction for administrative law purposes are found in sections 18 and 28 of the Federal Courts Act, which I'll talk about in a moment. Now, let me focus a little bit on judicial review as it evolved in the context of the federal courts. The major innovation of the Federal Court Act, as it then was, when enacted in 1971, was to transfer jurisdiction to review federal administrative action from the provincial superior courts to the federal courts. Why was this important? Well, at that time, prior to 1971, every provincial superior court had jurisdiction over federal executive judicial review, which meant there could be inconsistent applications of similar doctrine, of similar law across the jurisdictions between the provinces. This was relatively chaotic. And so the thought was to consolidate judicial review in the hands of a single federalized court, namely the Federal Court of Canada. Now, at the time, in 1971, when the Federal Court Act was enacted, there was a distinction made in administrative law between administrative bodies that were said to be judicial or at least quasi-judicial, and then administrative bodies that were more, well, they were more strictly administrative. They were bureaucratic. They didn't bear the imprimatur of some sort of tribunal-like process. Now, this distinction between judicial, quasi-judicial, and administrative was important for reasons of both the common law approach to the writ of certiorari and also the evolution of the common law concepts of natural justice and procedural fairness. It's no longer important anymore, but in 1971, it was. And that importance shaped the jurisdiction of the two branches of the Federal Court of Canada, namely the Federal Court Trial Division, as it was then called, and the Federal Court of Appeal. Why? Because the original provisions of the Federal Court Act divided jurisdiction on judicial review between the Federal Court Trial Division and the Federal Court of Appeal based on this confusing distinction between judicial, quasi-judicial, and purely administrative powers. So basically, under the old Section 28 of the Federal Court Act, the Federal Court of Appeal had jurisdiction to review powers exercised by a judicial or quasi-judicial body, while the old Section 18 gave the Federal Court Trial Division, the lower court, powers to review decision-making on an administrative basis. This scheme was confusing and generated much litigation and frustration and resulted ultimately in amendments made to the Federal Court Act that came into force in February of 1992. Since then, there have been more minor changes, most significantly changes made in 2003, which reconstituted the court and especially the relationship between the trial level, once called the Federal Court Trial Division, now just the Federal Court, and the Federal Court of Appeal. And so now these are two distinct courts rather than branches of the same court. And so hence the plural Federal Courts Act as of 2003. And it's why we now refer to Federal Courts a reference to the federal court that is the trial level and the federal court of appeal. So how then does judicial review at the federal courts now work? And in looking at this issue, we're basically going to ask a series of leading questions that walk us down the procedural path for judicial review. First question, over whom do the federal courts have judicial review jurisdiction? Well, the federal courts have jurisdiction to review decisions, orders, or other administrative actions of what's known as a federal board commission or other tribunal. Now, federal board commission or other tribunal is a defined term, and you find it in Section 2 of the Federal Courts Act. It basically means any body or any person exercising or purporting to exercise jurisdiction or powers conferred by or under an act of parliament or pursuant to the royal prerogative. 
other than a few exemptions. And so a few exemptions include, for example, Section 96 courts. Section 96 courts may exercise power pursuant to a statute of parliament. Think the criminal code, but they are not reviewable in administrative law, not least because they're a judicial branch, not a branch of the executive. So bottom line, it's a very broad definition, but what we're talking about in practice is any person, and, and don't get confused by this reference to boards, commissions, or other tribunals, that makes it sound like it has to be a group of people who purport to exercise the power. No, no, it could be any person exercising a federal statutory power, power delegated to them by an act of parliament. Those people fall within the definition of a federal board, commission, or other tribunal. So too, persons who are exercising power pursuant to the royal prerogative. And so that means the federal court has the power to review administrative actions based on an exercise of at least the federal component of the royal prerogative. Okay, next question. What's the actual scheme or system for judicial review jurisdiction? Well, the most important provisions are found in sections 18, 18.1 through to 18.5, and section 28 of the Federal Courts Act. Those govern judicial review jurisdiction by the federal courts. These sections define first the level of court where judicial review applications are to be launched, and I'll come back to that in a second. Second, the scope of the jurisdiction possessed by the federal courts. And third, the powers that courts may exercise in terms of remedies. And so let's discuss each of these issues. But before we get to them, I want to just make one point about the concept of a statutory right of appeal. Now, recall from Module 7, when we talked about the impact of a failure to exhaust statutory appeals, I said that in deciding whether to award a remedy as a common law matter, courts will sometimes decline to give you a remedy. In fact, will often decline to give you a remedy unless you exhaust any statutory rights of appeal. I'm going to talk more about this when we get to our special module on remedies. Well, the Federal Courts Act has embellished or reinforced this common law expectation, and there's actually a bar, a limitation, a preclusion on you from bringing an application for judicial review if there is a statutory right of appeal from certain sorts of bodies. Not all bodies, but certain sorts of bodies. And the relevant section is section 18.5. And it says that where a provision is expressly made by Parliament in a statute for an appeal through to the federal courts themselves, or the Supreme Court, or the Court Martial Appeal Court, or the Tax Court, or to the Governor and Council, or to Treasury Board, in those circumstances where there is such a statutory right of appeal, that decision or order by the administrative decision maker is not judicially reviewable under the Federal Courts Act. So that, in other words, bars judicial review in the event that there's a statutory appeal to one of those bodies. It's not just a common law expectation, it's a statutory limitation on the actual jurisdiction of the federal courts to even receive such a judicial review application. So that's important. So let's circle back then and, and talk about the, the system or scheme for judicial review jurisdiction. And, and, and let's start with the level of court where judicial review applications are to be launched. Well, your judicial review application is launched at either the federal court or the court of appeal. And how do you decide in which court you'll bring the application? That's rather counterintuitive. One assumes typically that one starts always at the lower level court and then appeals subsequently to the court of appeal. That's not the way it works on judicial review in the federal courts. Why? Because if you look at the Federal Courts Act, Section 28 talks about the court of appeal having jurisdiction to hear and determine applications for judicial review made in respect to more than a dozen named federal board commissions or other tribunals. And so boards such as the Canadian Radio, Television, and Telecommunications Commission, the CRTC, 
or the Canadian International Trade Tribunal or the Competition Tribunal. There's a list that's enumerated in Section 28 where one of these bodies' decisions is being reviewed. That's where you go directly to the Court of Appeal. You do not stop at the lower-level court, the federal court itself. Rather, the court of what's known as originating jurisdiction, the place where you start, is the Court of Appeal itself. There may also be other instances where a statute other than the Federal Courts Act provides that judicial review goes directly to the Court of Appeal. And so you have to be attentive to these circumstances where you go right to the Federal Court of Appeal and not to the lower level court, the Federal Court. And most of that work is done simply by looking at Section 28. Okay, so what if your delegate is not named in Section 28 or there is no additional statute that gives the Federal Court of Appeal originating jurisdiction over that tribunal or board or commission? Well, then your application is by default brought to the federal court, the lower level court. And Section 18 is your core section of interest. In fact, Section 18 is, is of interest for both the federal court and the federal court of appeal because it's incorporated by reference with the federal court of appeal, Section 28 judicial reviews. So it matters for both courts, but let's focus on it now. So Section 18 says, subject to Section 28, the federal court has exclusive, and exclusive means monopoly, original, meaning that's the place it starts, jurisdiction to hear and determine any application for relief brought against the Attorney General of Canada or against a federal board, commission, or other tribunal that relates to injunctions, writs of certiorari, writs of prohibition, writs of mandamus, a writ of quo warranto, declaration, that is declaratory relief, all of which should sound familiar given our conversation about remedies in module number seven. And so it's a federal court that has the competency to embrace these remedies in relation to federal decision makers, executive decision makers. Now, underscore here that both Section 18 and Section 28, they talk about the jurisdiction being originating and exclusive. And so, again, when we say jurisdiction is originating, that means that that's the first level of judicial review. And so Section 18 and Section 28 they prescribe which level you start at. Section 28, when it says the Federal Court of Appeal is originating, that means you have to go to the Federal Court of Appeal. And the default, in the absence of it being listed in Section 28 or some other statute, the default then is that the originating jurisdiction is the Federal Court, the lower level. And we say the jurisdiction is exclusive because it's a monopoly. If it's conferred on one level, it's not available to the other level. Now, there are some exceptions to this rule in relation to a residual competence that the Section 96 Provincial Superior Courts have in relation to at least charter challenges, but we'll deal with that at a future juncture. All right, next issue. Who has standing to bring an application for judicial review? And so let's say you've got a federal delegate, a federal board commission or other tribunal. Let's say you know what court you've got to file your application in. Who can actually bring the application for judicial review? Who has standing? And the answer is found in the Federal Courts Act itself. It says 18.1, an application for judicial review may be brought by the Attorney General of Canada or anyone directly affected by the matter in respect of which relief is sought. And the language of directly affected really includes people who suffer a consequence as a result of a decision by the administrative decision maker. So a refugee in a refugee claim or a license applicant in a licensing decision. But what do you do if the decision affects a large number of people without particularly notable effects on any one person? What about a decision that a government makes, say, that it will not conduct an environmental assessment of a, a hydroelectric dam project? 
that's a decision that has a significant effect potentially on a large number of people, none of whom necessarily have a strong vested interest in being the applicant in a judicial review application. Or perhaps it's so remote that there are relatively few people who are affected, and yet it has important public policy implications. Well, the federal court has acknowledged that the language directly affected in the Federal Courts Act should not be used to render the government immune from judicial review where decisions affect an amorphous mass of people without having a particularly direct effect on any one person. And so the federal courts have recognized that there's something called public interest standing in judicial review that's available under the Federal Courts Act. There are a number of cases on point, and we'll explore this concept in our practical uh, components of the course. But just to summarize at the high level, there are basically three requirements if you're going to assert a public interest standing. First, the applicant must show that there's a serious issue raised on the law regarding the administrative action. And so there's got to be a real case. There's got to be a real question as to the validity of the administrative action, or a prima facie case is another way of putting it. Second, there has to be a genuine interest that the applicant has in the case. And so to use my hypothetical of a hydroelectric dam project, an environmental group that has a long track record of working on environmental issues would be the sort of applicant that can demonstrate that they have a genuine interest in the case. And then third, the proposed application must be a reasonable and effective way to bring the issue before the court. This standard used to be a major bar on public interest standing. Why? Because the applicant had to show that their case was the most reasonable and effective way to bring that issue before the court. And they couldn't do so if there were potential private litigants out there, say the cottage owner whose cottage was to be drowned by the hydroelectric dam. And that person would have a more material interest in that hydroelectric dam. And so the environmental group would lose on this third prong. But the third prong has been relaxed by jurisprudence from the Supreme Court. And now you look at a series of considerations about the party's capacity to bring forward a claim and whether the public interest transcends those most directly affected. And so access to justice issues would be very important here. The cottage owner may not have any money, and so they can't possibly bring the case. And so it really should be Greenpeace that brings the case. You look also at any realistic alternative means that would favor a more efficient and effective use of judicial resources, preferring another applicant over the public interest applicant because it would be more efficient. And then last, you also consider the potential impact of the proceeding on the rights of others who are equally or more directly affected. These are all considerations that the Supreme Court has cautioned one has to look at in relation to this third prong of the case. And we'll be working with these going forward. Next, in terms of our sequence of questions, there's the timing for judicial review. And so you have a federal delegate, you know what courts you've got to run to, and you've got standing. When must you bring your application for judicial review? Well, pursuant to Section 18.1, an application for judicial review must be filed within 30 days after the decision was first communicated to the applicant by the administrative decision maker. And so the clock ticks when you were notified of the decision. And it's a short clock. It's 30 days. That's important. That's a limitations period. Outside of that limitations period, the federal court has no jurisdiction unless, and 18.1 allows this, at the discretion of the court, the court concludes that it will extend this 30-day window. But of course, that's not guaranteed. You've got to persuade the court that there's a good reason to extend this 30-day window. That puts you on your back foot if you're an applicant. And so you really want to be attentive to this 30-day limitations period. Next, procedure. Okay, so you've got a federal delegate. You know what court you've got to run to. You've got standing. You're within your 30-day window. What do you do? Well, you file something called an 
notice of application for judicial review. And in that notice of application, there are certain requirements. You have to set out the division of the court to which you're applying. You have to set out the names of the applicant and the respondent. It's going to be the government who's the respondent. If, as in our scenario, we're talking about a private individual who's suing the government in judicial review, you have to specify the delegate who's being reviewed. You have to set out the date by which the delegate's decision was communicated to the applicant. You need a precise statement of the relief being sought, that is the remedies, and you need a complete statement of the grounds to be argued, that is the justifications for the court to intervene. So that means you've got to think through your case before you file your notice of application. And then you also have to include a list of documentary evidence that you intend to rely upon. So let's focus next on that issue of grounds for review. So you have a federal delegate, you know what court you're going to, you've got standing, you're within the 30-day window, you're preparing your notice of application. What do you put in about the potential grounds for review? Well, the Federal Courts Act lists in 18.1 sub 4 grounds for judicial review. So the Federal Courts Act talks about errors of jurisdiction, errors of law, errors of fact, procedural fairness. Those are the most important. There's also a basket clause at the back of 18.1 sub 4 enabling review where the delegate acted in any other way contrary to law. Now, the reality is you can look at this list in 18.1 sub 4, and it's not really the way that judicial review works because so much has been said by the Supreme Court about the grounds for review that the packaging is quite different in practice. And so just be attentive to that because we're going to spend considerable amount of time talking about the grounds for review. But just notice the overlap between these grounds of review and some of the things we've already talked about. And so procedural fairness is a justification for the court to intervene. Errors of law, errors of fact are justifications for the court to intervene. And abuses of discretion are as well, not least because of that basket clause. And so all these sort of fundamental mistakes that an administrative decision maker can make are the sorts of things that the Federal Courts Act anticipates justify the court stepping in and intervening with the decision of the decision maker. Our next question, remedies. What remedies are available? Well, we're going to devote a whole module to remedies, but briefly, the federal courts have jurisdiction to grant relief only against the delegate reviewed, regardless of who the named parties are. And then in 18.1 sub 3, there's a list of what it is the federal court can do. And so order a federal board commission or the tribunal to do something that's unlawfully failed or refused to do or delayed in doing. That sounds a lot like mandamus. Declare invalid or unlawful. That sounds a lot like declaration. Quash, set aside, or set aside and refer back for determination in accordance with such directions as the court considers to be appropriate. That sounds a lot like certiorari. Prohibit, that sounds like prohibition. Or restrain, that sounds like injunction. And so notice the overlap in this more plain language description in the Federal Courts Act between what it is the federal court can do and those classic remedies we talked about in Module 7. And in fact, some judges and some parties will continue to use the older language of mandamus and certiorari and, and prohibition, etc., rather than the more colloquial provisions in 18.1 sub 3. My preference would always be to cite to the statutory provision rather than simply invoke the old prerogative writ, for example. But that said, in deciding, for example, whether the federal court will order a federal board commission or tribunal to do something that they haven't done, well, the court will fall back on the old common law expectations about mandamus, for example, and what you need to show to get a writ of mandamus. Again, that's something we'll talk about going forward. Just two more observations on remedies. 
First, the court can't make the decision that the delegate ought to have made. They can't step into the shoes of the delegate and say, well, I would have preferred this if I were the decision maker. That's not their job. Their job is to review for these errors and then send back or compel where the decision maker hasn't made a decision it must make under a statute, compel that decision, but not to put themselves in the shoes of the decision maker and choose their own preferences. So that's the first point. Second point, note that the federal court cannot award damages on judicial review. As I've said repeatedly, damages are not a remedy on judicial review. If you want to seek damages, then you have to sue in action, not an application, and the action has to be for a tort or a breach of contract or something of a different sort than what we're talking about here in administrative law. Okay, so let's summarize how we approach judicial review in the federal courts. First question, was the decision made by a federal board commissioner or other tribunal? If it wasn't, there's no federal court's jurisdiction. Second, is there a statutory appeal available to one of the bodies listed in 18.5? If there is a statutory appeal, that appeal must be pursued because the federal court doesn't have jurisdiction on judicial review where there's a statutory right of appeal to a body listed in 18.5. Third, if there is no such statutory appeal or the appeal has been exhausted, is the delegate listed in Section 28 or does the delegating statute otherwise provide for judicial review by the federal court of appeal? Because if it does, you know you have to go to the Court of Appeal. Why? Because the Court of Appeal then has exclusive originating jurisdiction. If there's nothing about the Court of Appeal, then you default back to the federal court, and it's the court that has originating exclusive jurisdiction. Next question, do you have standing? Most likely because you're directly affected. Next question, are you within the 30-day window? And if you're not, you best prepare a motion to extend that window. Next question, number six, what are the grounds for review? Because you've got to think through those grounds of review in order to prepare your notice of application. And last question for our purposes today, what remedies are you seeking? Because you have to list those remedies also in the notice of application. And I would add, because often you won't necessarily anticipate every twist and turn of a case, it's good practice when you list those remedies to also include what's known as a basket clause where you specify, and such remedies as this honorable court may conclude are just. Okay, so that's a quick and dirty overview of judicial review at the federal courts. We're going to be working with some of these concepts in our practical component units of this course. But in the meantime, this ends Module 8.